Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. Today, we're speaking with Raina Telgemeier, the best-selling creator of Smile and Drama and Sisters. And now Guts. Yes. Raina's book, Smile, is the 2019 On the Same Page selection of Little Shop of Stories. Hello, Raina. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for talking with us tonight. You're welcome. This is great. How's the tour going? So far, so good. I have been to more cities than I can count, and I've been on the road since Labor Day, and uh, I've met thousands and thousands of kids, which is always the point. (laughs) It's been a lot of fun. (laughs) I have to wonder sometimes when people are on tour and the books are such... um, popular books with kids specifically, if it's easier or harder to have a kid audience than an adult audience? To me, it's actually easier to have a kid audience because they ask great questions and their enthusiasm level is through the roof and they're, you know, they're, they're just there to soak the whole thing in. So I I like adult audiences too. And I tend to sort of cater my talks a little bit more specifically if I'm talking in front of like a college age audience or something but um kids kids are definitely my favorite people to talk to (laughs) hi cat (laughs) what's your kitty's name i have two kiku he's a big orange ginger kitty and albie he's a black and white tuxedo they're like little halloween characters (laughs) one's a pumpkin and one is a skeleton (laughs) cats are so interested in newberry tart as they should be I would really love to hear you talk a little bit about the origins of Smile and how that came to be. Smile started its life in 2004 when I was invited to pitch a comic to a website called girlabatic.com, which was girl-friendly webcomics. And it seems like in 2004, that was, that was a space that needed to exist. It seems kind of ridiculous now, but... Um, And I had never done a webcomic before. I had been making short story and mini comics for, at that point, probably about six or seven years, but I had never put anything up online. So I took it as a challenge, like, okay, if I'm going to have a weekly deadline, and if somebody is there to kind of oversee the editorial process, I'm just going to start writing this story that I've had in my head for years and years. And it's a true story about an orthodontic nightmare that I had when I was in middle school, which involved a trip and a fall and a facial reconstruction and braces and headgear and surgeries. Um, And it kind of defined my, my life and a lot of my experiences with, with my social life, especially when I was a teenager. So I had been thinking about it for a long time and, and just seized that opportunity to start. And it was exactly the same time as I got hired to do the babysitters club graphic novels for scholastic. So I already had fans at Scholastic when I started working on the series and posting the pages to my site. And there was kind of like a a general sense that, oh, at some point, you know, if you ever finish the story and you want to publish it, maybe we'll publish it. But it didn't actually get published for another six years. (laughs) And in in that time period, I was working on it weekly and occasionally taking a break to work on Babysitter's Club stuff for like, you know, anytime you're working on a book, there's always that final push towards the end where you wrap up your project. So I would solicit friends to tell their orthodontic stories also. <laughs> and I would run those on the website. 
Um, yeah, so I, I amassed like a small readership over the years that I was publishing online and ended up switching the website that hosted the series a few times. But by the time Scholastic picked it up, it, it was 120 pages in. Wow. And then I finished the last, you know, third of the book pretty quickly and then published it in 2010. And then my whole life changed. <laughs> oh, here's my thought. I have a lot to say about this too. <laughs> Do you just mean by like people knowing your name or do you mean accessibility to the projects you want to be able to do all of those things? It was all of those things. I, you know, the babysitters club books were published. Sorry. The graphic novels were published between 2006 and 2008. So I had already gotten some kid readers and some, you know, print fans through those books. But then when smile came out, it was like, not an overnight success, but people were just really interested in me and in my work and in my stories and in my, my books. And so after that, things just started to kind of happen quickly. And it took a couple of years, but by the time Sisters was published, I was just Raina. I wasn't Raina Telgemeier anymore. I wasn't Raina Telgemeier, the creator of Smile. I was just Raina. And kids just knew my books as Raina books. And, um, I, I mean, I got letters from people all over, all over the world and I was, I was just getting such a ton of feedback about my projects and most of them were just, I can relate, you know, you're writing about something that's so universal and so common, which is just these feelings that we deal with when we're teenagers, <laughs> you know, things that I had never really opened up about. But once I started writing books about those feelings and about those trying times and all those relationships that you have when you're trying to figure out who you are. Um, they just seem to strike a chord with readers. And so ever since then, I've, I've had just millions of people all around the world who feel like they know me and feel like they're my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Does that get exhausting or is it okay? <laughs> it's great. I it's, it's tiring to feel like, you know, everybody wants to actually be my friend in real life. So I have millions of people every day who are like tweeting at me or emailing me or, you know, reading my books and talking about them. And I'm like, ah, that's great. Like I can't, there's just no way for me to personally respond to all of them. Right. And I know that what they really want is for me to keep writing. So I've sort of had to choose to focus more on the actual creating of the work rather than, you know, I don't want to say promoting the work because that's an important piece of it, but just, just making sure that one doesn't outweigh the other and that I spend most of my time and energy on actually creating new projects. And um, I don't know. I, I, I also know that it's it's incredibly lucky to be able to do this and to do this for a living. So there's, there's a ton of privilege that I have in the fact that I have as many readers as I do. But, you know, I... <laughs> I keep thinking about what would I have wanted when I was that kid? Would I have wanted uh, a form letter from Beverly Cleary to say, thank you for your letter. <laughs> Great. I'm glad you liked my book. Or would you have rather like she just keep making books as long as she could? And of course she has. <laughs> so <laughs> That's really great. Before Smile in the, the Smile Project, were your comics autobiographical? A lot of them were, yeah. So I started making mini comics and short story comics when I was like 19 or 20. 
But before that, I had been keeping a diary in comic book format for like 10 years. <laughs> I did it from the time I was in sixth grade all the way till the end of college. So I had this like entire record of my life in journal comics format and could go back and reread them and revisit them. And some of them I threw away, a lot of them I kept. And, um, you know, it, it just, it was this thing that I had always done just by habit. And just because I, I didn't really have a choice. I just did it. It was just who I was. And I had no idea that that would ever turn into something I could do as my career. But in a sense, you know, the, they say like the thing you love, like, <laughs> look at that and see what that thing is. And then you never know that could turn into something that you do that other people will love too. So with your, your books that you've written that are autobiographical, you obviously base most of it on your journals. Did you fact check any of the events or get the perspectives of any of your family members? I do. I do a combination of both. I write the story. I just, I sit down, I write what I can remember as best as I can. I try to, you know, connect all the dots. And then if I need to, I'll send the script to anybody who I feel can either offer a new perspective on it or fact check me. So like, for example, when I wrote Sisters, my sister was the first person who read the script. And I wanted her feedback on her character and our interaction and her memories from that that trip that we took when we were kids and that I wrote about in the story. And she didn't have a ton of feedback. And it, I mean, her memories are similar to mine, but they, different things stick out for her. So for her, she remembered more that our brother was super annoying on that trip. <laughs> and I hadn't remembered that so much because I was often sitting in the front seat and I was the one who was like navigating for my mom and holding the map and the two of them were in the back seat squabbling. So I wouldn't have remembered that so much, but um, she did. <laughs> so I was able to kind of boost my brother's irritation levels in that story. And, um, you, you know, things like in Smile, we experience a big earthquake. And that really happened in 1989 in San Francisco. A lot of people do remember that who were here, who read about it, or it happened during a World Series broadcast. So a lot of people happened to be watching television and had their site set on San Francisco that very afternoon. So in that case, I had a lot of like research that I was able to do. And I was able to pull up like what the actual newspapers looked like from that week and was able to use real headlines in the backgrounds of the story that I was working on. And, you know, I, there were a lot of resources available to me. And so it's, it's kind of a, Almost everything is, it falls somewhere in between those two things. Like me just kind of writing from my own memories and then fact-checking a historical event. Um, and I get some things wrong. You know, everybody's going to do that. Our memories are not perfect things. But I have access to old report cards from my kid, Dumb, and I ha my parents took a lot of photographs. And so, you know, I've, I've done my best to piece it all together. So you're writing your past stories, and of course, a lot of them, because we're about the same age, a lot of them don't have the technology in them that exists today. True. So are there things that you've left out that you think would be too complicated for current kids to understand in a graphic novel without a lot of explanation? I do trust that my readers will look for the answers to questions they don't know. <laughs> Sometimes they will tweet at me and ask me these questions themselves. 
And I mean, I think I think kids know that we didn't have cell phones in the 90s. <laughs> and so when my mom's car breaks down in sisters and she abandons me and my sister in the desert, she hitchhikes back to the nearest town with my brother in tow. Yikes. You know, that really happened. We were victims of circumstance in that sense. Like if she had had a cell phone, she would have just called the tow truck from where we were and they would have gotten there in half an hour and we would have been fine. But as it was, we were in the desert in our car alone for four hours. And, you know, I, I think people understand that. <laughs> and if ever there's something that we're not sure, and when I say we, I mean me and my editors, that there needs to be some context for, we'll sometimes stick in a footnote or we'll, you know, put something into the back matter of the story to say, like, by the way, you know, things have changed since then. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's okay. And I think because most of what I'm focusing on in my stories is personal interactions and, you know, the emotional landscape of myself and my characters, that's the focal point. The details themselves are not quite as important. So I I also want to try and make them feel a little bit timeless. And I know that in another generation or two, writers will say the same thing and there will always be technology in their books. There will always be such things as text and email, but you know, <laughs> even to this day, we still write postcards to each other. We still send letters. We still have a postal service, which is great. I'm so glad. <laughs> so glad that in the year 2019, we have the post office. But, um, you know, time is going to move forward. And I didn't feel unwelcomed into stories when I was a kid that took place before I you know, would have been alive. I, I still identified with the characters. I still identified with their feelings and their thoughts. So I just I just trust that my readers will do the same. Well, based on the popularity of your books, I think that that has been proven successful. <laughs> um, but right. it, it did also like ring very true to people our age, the little tiny... We, we actually did a review episode already of, of Smile where we talked with the manager of Little Shop of Stories about it. And we were pointing out all these little things that even as someone slightly older than us, he didn't notice, but like little things like uh, how in one scene you were reading a YM magazine or mm-hmm. different TV shows that were on. And it's it's funny because that resonates one way for us. And the kids now might not notice that, but other things resonate for them. But everybody loves them regardless. So I think it works. We have also been reading Guts and, of course, love that, too. I have just a total uh, frivolous uh, aesthetic question. Do you have a lot of input into, like, the color palette or the covers? Because I know that most of the time when we talk to authors, we tend to talk to, like, Newbery authors who, if they have uh, graphic elements to their books, they don't have much control over that at all. But obviously, Mm -hmm. the situation for you would be different. So I was just wondering what kind of... um, input or control you have over like the books as a whole, because the color palette of the covers is amazing. Thanks. The color palette of the covers has always been set by my editors and the designer at Scholastic, Phil Falco. Um, And I wanted the cover of Guts to be green because this whole story is about feeling sick and about feeling, you know, green in the face with nausea, but they actually tried a green cover and they couldn't find the right, Pantone chip. <laughs> they, they tried a bunch of different things and it just wasn't working. And they said it was it was just appearing too too similar to Smile, so they decided to go in an other a different direction and use purple. But purple and green are such good complementary colors that I think the exterior being purple and then 
the story begins at night and it sort of leads you into like a purplish landscape. And then by contrast, you know, all of the six scenes are green. And that I, I wouldn't say I had control over it, but I do work pretty closely with my colorist. And I was like, okay, when she's sick or when she's having a panic attack, I want to make sure that there's some visual distinction between those scenes and the rest of the story. So green was a pretty obvious choice. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a back and forth conversation, but Braden Lamb, the colorist has a tendency to like nail things. <laughs> so he's, he's responsible for the palette inside the book, but Scholastic, the company is responsible for what the exterior looks like. And I work pretty closely with both of those. Oh, uh, they did an awesome <laughs> job. Yeah. <laughs> and he's Thanks. done the color for most of your books, right? He didn't do smile and he didn't do drama, but he's done okay. everything since. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, this is a very personal story. I thought that the paneling that you used in this story was incredible. The way that you isolated different parts of your body. Mm -hmm. In particular, there's a couple of full page spreads where you have your full, like you're laying down and you have a full body drawing but then the panel is um, oh like the one where it's like in bed and in a field and yeah yeah mm -hmm. so great and I, I thought that was I, I just think that's incredible and also I think it does a great job of conveying how your stomach can kind of run away with you yeah and your emotions can run away with you but then the rest of you is just kind of there <laughs> and then of course the first throwing up spread with the tiles falling it's just I never thought that I would see a beautiful rendering of vomiting <laughs> no no me neither um but it's beautiful and touching and just it's just incredible so again sorry it's... if we're gushy but um well that yeah. it's, it's a good word gush like that's, that's a perfect <laughs> word for this book um gushing out of you it's i i that was actually one of my the challenges that kept me from writing this story for a long time was it's about bodily functions which are gross and with graphic novels, you're going to see everything. So I wasn't sure if I could tell the story in a way that would sort of stay away from just gross out humor. Mm -hmm. But I decided to start the story with the fact that when you're in like fourth grade, everybody thinks gross out humor is the best thing. So all of my classmates were obsessed with like the garbage pail kids at the time. And with, I don't know, the 80s and 90s were full of gross things. I mean, just by design, like it, it was a virtue. It was a delightful thing, like gross candy and gross squeeze balls. Mad balls. Yeah. Ugh. Yes. Mad balls. That's what they're called. Thank you. And those things that, you, you know, they turned into monsters. It just, everything was gross back then. <laughs> Nickelodeon. Yeah. Nickelodeon. So, so like at the time yeah. that was, that's what was, that was what was big. And so I sort of wanted to touch on that and not, not too much, but just the fact that that gross was funny and gross was in, but that gross wasn't a good thing for me. That gross was tied to my panic and to my phobia and to bodily functions and to things that are unmentionables and make people feel uncomfortable. So I think, you know, in in the visuals for the story and in the story itself, I kind of wanted to explore that, that dynamic. And uh, I don't know if I did it academically, but I did it as best I could. And I don't know, a lot of the challenge for writing this book was just finding ways to do that without 
turning the reader off completely. Because <laughs> I could have. I could have, but I didn't want to. So something that I'm struck by in, across all your autobiographical um, graphic novels uh, is how you, you end up having a holistic view of your life as a teen and a, a young teen and as a teen. Um, and I think that's incredible. So, of course, in Smile, you have the orthodontic nightmare, but you also have a full scope of your life um, mm -hmm. and all the things that happen. And um, you have so much in there that's all happening simultaneously. I think sometimes, in particular stories for children, they'll isolate an incident. And so that happens separate from and up above or beyond everyday life. And, right. um, and so I think that your visuals, your incredible visuals along with the story do a great job of, of mirroring back to kids what they actually are living. It's a, it's always been a goal mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure. And part of that came because when I was working on smile and putting up one page on the internet every week, people had a chance to weigh in. And I thought I was just going to be telling the story of my orthodontic adventures. I, I really did. I thought, well, I'm just going to start writing it and I'll just kind of show the reader where I am at the time, but I'll focus mostly on the dental work. And people got really caught up in like the friend relationships and who, who I was hanging out with and whether I had a crush on any boys. And, you know, I started to notice that and I started to play with that and to kind of draw those scenes out to be longer and more in depth. And, and I, I just was delighted to discover that people were interested in like the nitty gritty life stuff as much as in the dental drama. But, you know, in the course of working on it, I started to see the parallels and was able to like eventually tie it all together. When I started it, I didn't really know what shape it was going to take. I knew where it started. I knew where it ended and I knew all the major things that happened along the way, but it was as much of a surprise to me in, in what happened in the course of getting there. So it was a bit of a journey. But then when I sat down to write Sisters, I had a much clearer idea of how I was going to tell that story and the structure I wanted to take. And just, you know, it's been interesting. When I, when I started to write Sisters, I very consciously decided that I didn't want there to be a narrator. And I don't even know if people notice this, but in Smile and in Guts, like adult me is still telling the story and still sort of reflecting back on what I was going through and how I felt and giving some context for things. And even just saying, you know, like the next day, that stuff, but sisters doesn't have that at all because I wanted that story to be sort of an open-ended question. I didn't want the ending to be neatly wrapped up. I wanted it to be completely from the point of view of 14 year old me who is confused and a little bit concerned and worried and, you know, not knowing what the future held. And I didn't want there to be an omnipresent narrator saying everything was going to get better or, <laughs> and then we discovered, you know, it's like, none of that is happening when you're a kid. <laughs> you're not, you don't have that voice telling you it's going to be okay. Um, but I decided that in guts, it was important to have that, that device again. So I brought it back and I brought it back very consciously and used it in a conscious way. So yeah, it's every book is its own project. Every story is its own story. And I do see my graphic novels kind of like short stories. They're all about the character me, but each autobio memoir that I write is about a specific topic. 
It's about a specific time period. It has its own set of characters. It plays by its own rules. And you can read it as a standalone. But I, I like to think that they all do complement each other and that you can read them all in any order and get sort of a deeper and richer picture of <laughs> of me. <laughs> That's so strange coming out of my mouth. I, I never <laughs> intended it to be that way. And I don't intend it to be that way now. But I'm I'm seeing the value in talking to kids about experiences that I've had and things that I've been through and how reassuring it can be for them that they're living these lives. They're in the middle of their lives. They're, they're just beginning their lives, you know, but they have lots of ways that they can approach what's happening to them. I think that might be one of the biggest things that I can see appealing to kids. And what I find, one of the things I find appealing about your books is that we know that you made it through it. We know that you made it through these, these incidences, these circumstances, and you, you are well enough and you are in such good shape that you're able to come back and write about them to not give advice, but to kind of have a little guidepost. (laughs) So even if the kid isn't going through exactly what you went through, the kid knows that it's Mm -hmm. survivable. The kid knows that it's normal and you know, this, I can't think of anything more valuable than that. Thank you. And I just, I always want to make sure that they know that I'm not perfect and that my character doesn't always make the right decisions and that, you know, there's, there's ways to fail sometimes and still get through it and still (laughs) come out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you said just a moment ago, you were like, clearly you are well enough that you have gotten through this. And I was like, well, asterisk, (laughs) we need to, we need to make sure that, that kids know that I'm, there's, there's no like perfect end goal. There's no perfect end Mm -hmm. state. And with something like anxiety, which I wrote about in guts, I still suffer from. And -hmm. I think it's okay to, to show them that you never really get over this. You don't get cured from it, but you can learn to live with it and you can learn to thrive with it. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I wanted to talk openly about the work that I'm still doing and about the, the therapy that I still engage in because it's a big part of who I am and the life that I live. And that for me, you know, talking honestly through my work has been my biggest saving grace, I think. I'm giving you a high five through the ether um, <laughs> as, a li- as a lifelong, lifelong anxiety riddled being. Um, and I, that was one of the things I thought was incredible that guts not only tells your story, but it actually goes into some of the techniques that you found helpful in therapy. And, you know, some kids of course, aren't going to have access to therapy. And Mm -hmm. so these are things they could try and they could, you know, hopefully that could be a bit helpful. Yeah. I need to make a section of my website with some resources and some, you know, links to videos or whatever, like stuff that kids can use, stuff that kids can try. They try is maybe the most important word to come out of guts. That could have been the alternate title is try. I can't even fathom the fact that, one, that you can be so open about, like, if it, if it were me, I, there are lots of stories that I would like to avoid instead of exploring and putting out mm-hmm. for the public, which is super brave. But then also to to have to go on tour <laughs> and talk to thousands yeah. of people about it is amazing that you can do that. 
yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. But it, I, I have exclaimed multiple times on this particular book tour that I feel this bizarre sense of peace. I've always been, you know, stressed out when my book tours happen because they are just time consuming. And there's a lot of, a lot of waking up early, a lot of traveling <laughs> and a lot of uncertainty with every new day. But for whatever reason, talking about all of this publicly and talking to kids about it, I feel so good. <laughs> I'm like relaxed and I'm really enjoying myself and I'm really able to focus on the presentations and on the kids that I meet. And a lot of them, you know, they can't even talk. They're just, they like start crying sometimes. And it's, it's nice to just be able to hug them if that's what they're, they want. You know, not every kid wants a hug, but some of them do. And sometimes I need a hug too. And <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been nice. Uh, what do you use for references? It's a combination of everything. I don't do too much in-person modeling. I used to do a little bit of that. When I was working on Babysitter's Club, I would sometimes, you know, get down on the floor and like have somebody take a picture of me <laughs> doing whatever pose I needed to be in. But I think over time, I've just gotten more comfortable with drawing people and drawing environments. And that means I am cheating more and am using less reference than I used to. But when it comes to backgrounds, I use more because now I'm getting good at being more specific about the places that my story take, stories take place. I mean, when I first started working on Smile and then when I did Sisters, I was living in New York. So I wasn't here in San Francisco able to just go to the street corners that I was drawing. And 2010, you know, Google Maps was okay, but it's a lot better now. So uh, <laughs> I've gotten more specific, I think. And I don't know if that's good or if that's bad or if it's neutral, but I don't know. I like, I like to be able to draw places and I like that people then will come to San Francisco to visit and they'll go, wow, I feel like I'm walking through the pages of smile. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's true. But you're also in San Francisco, which it, it's a, it's a real place. So it's fun <laughs> to just take advantage of that. But so I have a hard time when I'm writing fiction and I have to make places up. I'm not good at that. <laughs> I'm much better at looking at a real thing and describing it or drawing it. Was it hard to do like um, to do that with your childhood, uh, like bedroom and living room and all that? Did you look at pictures or did you just remember? Oh, it's still there. Oh, your my mom still my mom still lives in that house. Oh, wow. So I'm able to <laughs> <laughs> able to go there anytime I want to. Oh, cool. um, yeah, I mean, I, I do have pictures and I do have a pretty good memory. And I think so much of that memory came from journaling, but also just drawing so much when I was a kid. So I got better at visual memory and at recording things and yeah, just kind of capturing things in time. We usually talk to Newbery authors and when we do, we like to ask what their favorite Newbery book is. And I have a guess based on your uh, <laughs> FAQ page on your website. Is it um, Mrs. Frisbee? Ding, ding, ding. Yay. <laughs> Robert C. O'Brien. I came to Mrs. Frisbee because I saw The Secret of Nim, the oh. movie adaptation. Adaptation yes. being a very loose term in this case. <laughs> but Don, Don Bluth adapted that, that story in the early 80s. And it's a completely different story. Like there's, there's magic and there's an amulet and there's a 
you know, some wizard stuff that happens and it's, it still has the framework that the book has, but the characters are sort of rewritten and a little Disney-fied. And I love the movie, but when I read the book with my mom a year later, we were both like, oh, oh, wait, this is way better. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I, I, I mean, I read that book. I was probably like six, maybe like when my mom read it to me for the first time. And then I would bring it into each class uh, every year and ask if the teacher would read it for read aloud because I liked it so much. And I think my second grade teacher did a read aloud of that book and he got one of my favorite lines wrong. And I was so mad. (laughs) (laughs) That is not acceptable. Do you want to know the line? Yeah, Yeah, of course. Okay. So the rats and Mrs. Frisbee are like in a kitchen and they're looking for something to eat and they figure out how a can opener works. And... Uh, I think the narration says, I'll never forget what was in that first can. Clam chowder. Delicious. <laughs> and so when my teacher read it, he read it as clam chowder. It was delicious. And <laughs> I was so bad. Because <laughs> my mom and I loved that line so much. We loved the simplicity of, the simplicity of it. The one word sentence, the pause, you know, it, it just, it was just like something you would say when you sit back with your friends, you'd say delicious and make like the chef's kiss. Um, <laughs> symbol with your hands, and then but to say it was delicious, it just like took the wind out of my sails, and I remember being so irritated. And this was probably like my first run in with accuracy to an author's vision and to a close read, and to feeling like you know, appreciation of literature it's probably different for every person, but it's better if you actually read what the author intended. <laughs> I think I had been anticipating him reading that line just the right way. And then he didn't. Oh. So, uh, so upset. <laughs> like talk, complained to my mom about it later. So I, <laughs> She was mad too. So, <laughs> so we, we really appreciated that book and that line. And I've, I've reread it probably more than any other book throughout my life. Um, and each time I think, am I really going to like it as much this time? And I do every time. Thank you so much for joining us as we talk to Raina Telgemeier. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. We were so excited to talk to you. Thanks, you guys. If you would like to learn more about Raina or her books, you can check out her website at goraina.com, which is G-O-R-A-I-N-A.com. Raina is the featured author for her book, Smile, for 2019 for On the Same Page, which is a community-wide reading initiative in Decatur, Georgia. You can learn more about it at weareonthesamepage.org. And if you'd like to learn more about the independent children's bookstore that supports On the Same Page, Little Shop of Stories, you can look at littleshopofstories.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.